This is the uh, second Sunday that we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy. Last week we read through it. Today we're going to begin talking about it. So I'm going to read the first seven verses and talk about the first two. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men strain from these things, that is, love from a good conscience, pure heart, and sincere faith. For some men strain from these things have turned aside the fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Father, again, we give you praise and thanks for providing us with your word, for giving us the ability to have it in our hands, to have it in our minds, to have it in our hearts. Teach us from what you have given us by your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins by saying that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. So I want you to notice that Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus according to or as the result of of the commandment of God and Christ Jesus. It was commanded of him, he says. Now to me it's interesting that Paul's introduction in 2 Timothy is slightly different from his introduction here in 1 Timothy because here in 1 Timothy he says he's an apostle by the commandment of God while in 2 Timothy he says he's an apostle by the will of God. So just two words are different, commandment and will. So that makes me want to ask the question, is there a difference between being called into some form of service by God's will? Paul was called into service. Is there a difference between being called into some form of service by God's will versus God's commandment? And if so, what is the difference? So to answer this question, I want to begin by reading Luke's account of Paul's conversion. I don't know if you've read that lately, but uh, listen as I read it to you. 
This comes from Acts chapter 9 and starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 19. Now, Paul used to be named Saul. That was his original given name. It was changed to Paul by God. So when I say Saul, that's Paul. Now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now you might think that, you know, Paul is just this crazy guy out persecuting Christians. And I'm not defending his behavior, but I think it's wise for us to at least have some foundational understanding of why he would do what he was doing. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm only going to read to you verses 13 through 15, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is making a statement to the Israelites that he is to be their only God. And here's what he says, starting at verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow any other gods. What did Jesus claim? That he was God. And he was the Son of God. Yes. You shall not follow other gods, God said to the Israelites. Any of the gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. Notice, if if you let some of your own people start worshiping other gods, it's going to bring God's anger against Israel, so that he's going to be upset with you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. One could make a good argument that Paul was trying to protect Israel from being wiped off the face of the earth by getting rid of Jesus Christ. I suspect that could be one of the reasons he said, I did this in ignorance. He wasn't just a hater of Christians. It's very likely he was a protector of Israel just in the wrong way. He didn't really listen to Christ. He didn't really know what Christ was saying and the truth that came out of him. He didn't investigate. He was just acting as a good Jew to protect the Jewish nation. I'm going to keep reading on. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. As Paul was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Notice those words. It will be told you what you must do. That's like a commandment. The men who traveled with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight 
and neither ate nor drank. Now, it's real likely he was fasting and praying. We should give him a little credit for that, don't you think? Even though he was misled and going the wrong direction. Three days without food or drink. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. I'm not sure exactly what Ananias was thinking, but he might have been thinking, God, why, you know, why are you protecting this guy? He's done you so much harm. And here, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, men and women. And that's pretty cruel. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, God's will, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And verse 16 has been to me a a statement of the wisdom of God. Here's a guy that was out persecuting God's people, Christians. And here's what God said it's going to happen to Paul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Yeah. Imprisoned, beaten, beaten with a whip, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, going without sufficient food, sufficient clothing. He suffered, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from Paul's eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. That's the story of his conversion. And we see the activity of God in that. We also read in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, just a short story of Paul being sent out into missionary work. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, and then they list, I don't know if this is lists all of them or just some of them, but... There's Barnabas, there's Simeon, there's Lucius, there's Manoan and Paul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Paul, for the work to which I've called them. Commanded or willed. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. For me, these two accounts 
show us that God was in charge and directly involved in Paul's conversion, the type of service that Paul was to do, and his being sent out by the church to do the work that he was either called or commanded or willed by God to do. God was active and instrumental in each of those things. According to Webster's 1913 unabridged English Dictionary, a commandment in relation to serving the one who gives the command is an order or an official mandate given to one under authority. And Webster's defines a person's will, or in this case God's will, as a decree or command by an authority. When we put Luke's account in Acts 9 and Acts 13 together with Webster's definitions, I think we find that the will of God and the commandment of God are essentially two ways of saying the same thing. 1 Timothy, by the command of God. 2 Timothy, by the will of God. However, according to our use of language, the phrase, the commandment of God, is commonly understood as a stronger way of telling us what we must do in contrast to the phrase, the will of God. In other words, we often hear, this is the command of God, is, oh, i got to do that. This is the will of God. Hmm, okay. It's what he wants. Why? Why do we take them differently? Why is it our tendency to treat God's will as something he would like or desire while treating God's commandments as something he demands or requires? I don't really know. I don't have a good answer. But I do know that we, we do. We treat them differently. And to show you how often we do it, I'm going to give you two examples from my own experience with fellow believers. And this started way back when I was uh, early teen and, and observing what was going on within the church. So my first example has to do with various forms of Christian service. And bear in mind that the form of Christian service God calls or wills or commands you to do will affect how you live your life. And the effect could be costly. Missionary service. Yes. People have been imprisoned, tortured, died because of God's call to missionary service. So it can be costly. And because of this, not everyone wants to do what God has called or willed or commanded them to do. And not just missionary service. How about just being a witness to your neighbor? Are we not called to do that as well? Well, to help Christians feel better, or at least that's my assessment, to help Christians feel better, or at least less guilty about not doing what God called them to do, it became popular at some point to speak of God's perfect will and his permissive will. God's perfect will is spoken of as God's first choice, or the form of Christian service he wants you to do. 
While God's permissive will is treated as a form of Christian service God accepts, if you say no to his perfect will and do something other than his perfect will. Those who separate God's will into these two categories do so on the basis of knowing, acknowledging, and believing certain things. So first, they know. They know, or at least have a sense, of what God's perfect will is for their lives. Second, they acknowledge that living in God's permissive will is not as good as fulfilling His perfect will. It's like the second choice. It's the step-down will. And third, though having settled into God's permissive will, they believe God is still pleased with them since they are involved in some form of Christian service. So this was a pretty common experience in the church I grew up in. Uh, Missions was promoted. Uh, Serving God as an evangelist in your work place of work, being a witness, an active Christian witness at work or in your neighborhood was promoted. These are things that we were to do, and uh, those who had a reason not to do them would get involved in other forms of service and do the permissive will of God and feel that, you know, well, at least I'm involved in Christian service. That's good. God's at least pleased with that. In my opinion, this kind of reasoning ends up treating God's will as something he desires rather than requires, thus making it an option rather than an obligation or duty. And yet for Paul and Webster, the only difference between God's commands and his will is the choice of words used to make the demand. I'm an apostle by God's command. I'm an apostle by God's will. The second example that I want to give you has to do with God's will regarding the believer's sanctification. This comes right out of the scriptures. As you may recall from our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is what is written there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's my observation that many Christians treat faith in Christ as a requirement for salvation. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ. And they treat sanctification as an optional addition to salvation. I know that those who maintain this view support it with various scriptures, but they do that while ignoring other scriptures that contradict their particular view, such as Hebrews 12.14, which says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Read Romans chapter 6 if you have any question about the, the, the essential part of sanctification in the believer's life. Yet because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and its wording, that is, that sanctification is what God wills rather than commands, it is my experience in talking to believers that they feel safe 
in treating sanctification as something God desires rather than requires. And if you talk to them about it as a requirement, they will quickly say something like, but that's works-based salvation. And yet, once again, I want to remind you that for Paul and Webster, the only difference between God's commands and his will is the choice of words. So the point of all this, though I've taken some time to make it, the point of all this is that we are wise to treat God's commands and his will as equals what God requires, even though he is merciful and gracious when we treat his will as something he desires. Moving on to verse, or returning to verse 1, Paul describes God as our Savior and Christ Jesus as our hope. There's not a whole lot to learn from this, but I want to talk about it for a few minutes because it's an interesting thing. We're accustomed to speaking of Jesus as being our Savior, and uh, the phrase God our Savior appears six times in the New Testament. Five of the times it is Paul using this phrase, and the sixth time it is Jude. So that's not a lot, is it? We say Christ our Savior all the time. But here's how the Bible handles it, or at least here's how Paul's epistles handle it. Paul speaks of Jesus as our Savior only six times in his epistles. And actually five and the six times is stretching it, but I'll give him six. In other words, Paul almost evenly splits who he identifies as our Savior between God five times and Jesus six times. But why does this matter? I mean, does it really matter? I'm not sure there's a definitive biblically supported reason that it matters. And I don't know if it matters to you, but it does to me. For me, identifying both God and Jesus as our Savior paints what I would call a marvelous picture of God. Because it tells me that the God who ruled that eternal death would be the price we must pay for sinning, the God who set up the law, as it were, and said, if you break the law, you must die, is the same God who died in my place and your place. It's the God who paid that price on our behalf so we could live with him forever. He made the rule, and then he paid the price for us. Imagine that. Right, just to help you see it the way I see it. Imagine being totally sinless. Right, you're totally sinless. And you're the supreme authority. Nobody has authority over top of you. You are it. Totally sinless, you're the supreme authority. And you decide that because sin is so heinous and so destructive to all that is loving and good, you decide that sin is so bad that committing it would bring eternal death. And then, sinless as you are and being the boss as you are, the supreme authority as you are, you step in and pay that price on behalf of those who have committed sin. 
Imagine that. Is that how you treat your kids when they do wrong? Is that how you think of the neighbor when the neighbor keeps doing things that uh, bother you? That's what God did. God is Christ. And for me, this is both an amazing and a reassuring example of God's love, his mercy, his wisdom, and his grace. And that's why it mattered to me. Paul goes on to refer to Christ Jesus as our hope. The Greek word which our Bible translates as hope infers a certainty that we are going to obtain or experience something good. Hope. Here in verse 1, the reason for the certainty or confident assurance of our hope is Christ Jesus. He is the guarantee of our hope. Now this is different from our use of the word hope, which we use to convey a desire for something, something good, coupled with a belief in the possibility of obtaining it or experiencing it. I hope I get... Well, way back when I was younger, I had hoped that I would get a set of weights for Christmas. There was a possibility of obtaining it because Christmas is a time for gift giving. And my parents would buy each of us boys gifts for Christmas. So I was hoping I would get a set of weights for Christmas. I got a jacket, a winter jacket. Now, I wore that winter jacket into my 20s. I got it when I was probably 14. So, you know, it was a wonderful jacket. It was great for snow skiing and all sorts of other things. It was very warm. Finally wore out. But my hope was based on the possibility. I believed in the possibility. Christmas is the time for gift-giving, there is the possibility that I could get these weights. That's what our hope is like. That's how we use the word hope as people in today's world. The point is, is that the biblical use of the word hope is based on the certainty of something happening. While our use of the word hope is based on the possibility of something happening. And so Paul is affirming that Christ Jesus is the reason or the cause or the guarantee who gives certainty to our hope. Our hope in Christ is not in Christ as it were, as if he's our hope. Our hope in Christ is he's the assurance that our hope is certainly going to Come to pass. We can be confident, have a confident assurance. Paul says the same thing about God, by the way. Here about Christ. He says the same thing about God in Romans 15, verse 13. And let me read this to you. Now may the God of hope, or the God who is the reason for our hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now, I do want to stop here just for a moment. So, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
This has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. This is an aside. But to me, the really amazing thing about God is that not only does God fill us with joy and peace in believing, but you will find in your life that by believing, by trusting God, by waiting patiently for him to act, by resting in him, you will begin experiencing joy and peace. It's an amazing thing. Now, what comes first, chicken or the egg? Paul is saying the chicken came first, God came first. He's the one that does this in us. But it, it just kind of shows up. It just kind of happens. If you will trust God, if you will live as one who believes you are safe in his hands, you will experience joy and peace. It's just an amazing thing. So that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the end of Romans fifteen thirteen. In other words, our hope of salvation, our hope of eternal life, our hope for the return of Christ, our hope for the resurrection from the dead, our hope of God fulfilling his promises, our hope of one day being glorified with God, our hope of being given the Holy Spirit, the hope of Christ dwelling in us, the hope of becoming holy as God is holy. These things are not a hoped-for possibility, but a certainty. Because God and Jesus Christ are the assurance or guarantee that all these things either have already or will in the future come to pass. And so the encouragement to all of us is, let us confidently trust in Christ Jesus as our immovable and unchangeable basis or assurance for biblical hope. Verse 2, Paul writes to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Timothy is Paul's true child in the faith. By the way, Paul speaks of Timothy in similar ways. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes these words, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And then in Philippians chapter 2, we begin to understand why Paul has these feelings for Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else. Paul says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Imagine that. This is the Apostle Paul. He must have had people gathering around him. He must have had people who wanted to serve with him, who wanted to be discipled by him, who wanted to just be part of what he was doing. I mean, this is the nature of humanity. And he says, Timothy's the only one. He's the only one. I have no one else of kindred spirit who, who feels and, and thinks and looks at all of this the way I do. 
who understands it the way I do, who wants for it what I want. For they all seek after their own interest, verse 21, not those of Christ Jesus. Oh, they'll get involved. They'll participate in the work. They want to be sent here or sent there or to do this or do that, but they're in it for themselves. That's the difference. Timothy wasn't. He wasn't even in it for Paul. He was in it for God. But you know of his proven worth. Paul didn't just say this because he was saying nice things about Timothy to build him up or to encourage him or to get him to follow Paul. No, Timothy had to prove himself, his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And these scriptures tell us that Timothy's relationship with Paul was such that it resulted in Paul loving and caring for Timothy, just like a father loves a son. I want to take this idea and bring it to us. To me, it is amazing that the Christian life, when lived among other Christians who take their faith seriously, that this can result in the kind of love for one another that makes you feel like being with your church family is like being part of a loving, caring home. That's an amazing thing. We've experienced it here. We've experienced it at uh, a church that we attended. We've experienced it overseas. All of a sudden you're with other believers and it's like being in a safe, wonderful home environment. Being with a family that you know cares about you and loves you. And to me that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that your church family can become as near and dear to you as your earthly family ought to be or even actually is. Such love and the sense of belonging that comes with such love is especially meaningful for believers who come from dysfunctional homes. They've not really known that kind of love, the kind of love that can exist within a body of believers can be especially meaningful for those who come from abusive homes or broken homes or homes that reject family members for becoming Christians. We just finished studying Thessalonians and that church was raised up in an atmosphere of persecution. They didn't get a nice start and then persecution came. They started and persecution started. And it's real likely that there were families who kicked believers out and said, you're no longer a child of ours. That culture was doing those kinds of things that still happens in certain parts of our world. You become a believer, you're no longer a part of this family. Who is your family then? It's the body of Christ. It's us. And without question, this is the kind of love that we are to feed and nurture and protect and practice with one another. 
And I'm not even suggesting we don't have a good start with this kind of love. To the measure that we already do this, I want to commend every one of you. This is the way we've reached out to help each other, especially in these, not especially as if it hasn't happened before, but we especially see it in these last months. The reason I'm bringing this up, however, is because I want to encourage us not to settle into where we are. but to work at loving one another even more. To value and protect and increase this kind of love among us so that it continues on as an identifying mark of our Christianity. That should somebody come along and study us, they would be able to say they, they really loved and cared for one each other like a family. And let us also be a secure, loving home for those needing a secure, loving family. The final statement in Paul's introduction is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And with this statement, Paul is doing two things that I believe, I'm convinced, should be part of our thinking as well as our speaking. First, Paul is expressing a desire for Timothy to experience good things, which in this case is grace, mercy, and peace. And in like manner, we ought to have the same desire for each other to experience good things, and the good things are the best things, and the best things are from God. We... uh, we just got a new mattress for our bed yesterday. We've never owned a new mattress. We've always used uh, other cast-offs. So, you know, it's really a, a, a nice thing to have a brand new mattress. And, you know, you could be happy that we have something good, something new. But better that you should be happy that we know God and that we are growing in the faith if we are. We should desire those kinds of good things for one another because those are the good things that really matter in the end. Do I love my wife? You should desire that. Do I love our children? You should desire that for us. We should desire that for each other. Yes, a new car, a new mattress, a new this, a new that. I mean, we've had a banner fall. We got a new refrigerator as well. (laughs) It's like, wow. Things are really happening in the Bain household. But the best things that happen in our home, the best things that happen in this group, are the things that draw us closer to God, that build our faith, that make us more of what Christ saved us to be. Paul wanted this for Timothy. May we want this for each other. And the second thing is Paul is affirming that the only source for this Quality and quantity of grace, mercy, and peace is God himself. I don't know about you, but we just went through, in fact, we're not totally out of it, the whole virus situation. Do we give God praise and thanks every day for the health that we have? Are we grateful? Do we know where these things come from? 
Does our health come from the doctor? Does it come from our medication? Does it come from good luck? It comes from God. Yes, it does. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. That needs to be in our mind. That needs to be part of our thinking. That needs to be part of our speaking. It's good to sing hymns and songs of worship. It's good to express testimony. And I do not want to minimize any of that. I like it, enjoy it, love it as much as anybody. But what is even better is daily, wherever we are, we are acknowledging that all the good we have comes from God.